0: Hello and welcome to what is now Season 5 of Pebble in the Pond podcast. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year ANZMHA hosts several leading mental health conferences which give us the opportunity to connect with incredible industry leaders, lived experience speakers, researchers, academics and frontline workers as they share fascinating stories and projects which are changing the face of mental health within our community. Listen in as we go one-on-one with these inspiring people and dive deep into their work. It is truly a privilege to bring you their stories. Our podcast episodes may contain content which could be triggering for some people. If you need support, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or visit the Get Help page on anzmh.asn.au. Join us for Pebble in the Pond each Tuesday, and let's get into Season 5. Hello, listeners, and thanks for tuning in to another week of Pebble in the Pond. Steph is a research fellow at the Matilda Center for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use. Steph leads an innovative program of research and translation to reduce the impact of substance use. Her research aims to improve the health outcomes for individuals, families, and communities, especially among vulnerable and disadvantaged groups. in today 's episode, we chat with Steph about cracks in the ice, which is a national online portal funded by the Australian Government Department of Health to develop and dis- disseminate evidence based resources about crystal methamphetamines or ice for the Australian community. Steph is currently the project lead at Cracks in the Ice. Welcome, Steph.
1: Welcome to another episode of Pebble in the Pond. I'm your host, Talitha Natt. and this afternoon I am joined by the lovely Steph Kershaw at our Australian and New Zealand Addiction Conference. So I'm going to hand over to Steph to introduce yourself.
2: Thanks. So I'm Steph. I'm a research fellow at the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use, which is based at the University of Sydney, and my research is all around prevention, early intervention and treatment for
1: illicit substance use. Awesome. How long have you been at the Matilda Centre?
2: The Matilda Centre was established at the end of 2018 and I've been there ever since then.
1: Awesome. So tell me about your background in terms of how you got into research to begin with.
2: Well, I always wanted to do something health focused, but I was terrified of being a nurse or a doctor because I knew that I would get too emotionally attached and So I I thought maybe the best career is for something where I can support the healthcare system but in a sort of stepped-back way. So I chose Mm -hmm. to be a scientist and I trained to be essentially a lab rat Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, analyse all the blood samples, et cetera. But I got a bit sad doing that because I felt like I wasn't having a real-world impact. So I actually went over after I finished my PhD and worked for the World Health Organisation for a couple Mm. of years now. Yeah and I looked into the drug policy around sort of illicit drugs and worked particularly on the expert committee of drug dependence mm. and so that you know really brought home to me how important translational research is and the need for you know evidence-based research around sort of drugs and you know the changes that we make in policy if we have the evidence for it.
1: Why did you choose this area being, I guess, AOD, or sorry, alcohol and other drugs for our listeners, why did you choose this area in particular?
2: Well, it was a little bit of family history. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, a little bit of lived experience as a family member. Yep. And also it was just something that I fell in love with without sounding strange. Mm. (laughs) You know, I was offered a, a number of PhDs and, you know, I looked at them all and I thought, you know, drugs and alcohol, that really appeals to me. You know, I would like to understand more about it. I would like to be able to help people because I've seen what it's like to be a family member or friend who doesn't have that support or even knowledge about, you know, drugs and attitude and how they can help their loved
1: one. Mm, absolutely. So let's go back and talk about the work or the research that you're doing currently at Matilda. I think you've been doing a lot of studies around ice use, is that right?
2: Yeah, that's right. So after I finished up at the World Health Organisation, I started at the Matilda Centre and my project is all around an online portal called Cracks in the Ice, which is focused on disseminating evidence-based information about crystal methamphetamine and linking people to resources and support services across Australia. So we've got a number of resources for health workers and family and friends and people who use the drug. But one of the also beautiful things about Cracks in the ice is I do get to do some research through it. And through that I've been looking at sort of the knowledge and attitudes around crystal methamphetamine in Australia. Mm.
1: With the ice usage per capita in Australia being such a huge uptake, what are you seeing in terms of your research with the amount of ice usage in our country to date?
2: Well, so over the last 10 years or so, methamphetamine use has definitely increased and we've seen that sort of change in the type of methamphetamine being used to be the more pure form, which is crystal. And we're also seeing more people are smoking crystal methamphetamine as well. Right. And conversely, we've also seen a lot of public health campaigns around crystal methamphetamine, which unfortunately can be quite stigmatising. And so it is a little bit hard in Australia to measure rates because of the stigma associated with methamphetamine.
1: Mm, absolutely. So let's talk about the, the stigma around ice usage or, or drug usage in general. So I'm assuming you've done some studies around that particular topic, obviously.
2: Yes. And I keep putting it in. So obviously, it's something <laughs> I'm very passionate about. <laughs> so, um,
1: talk me through it. What are you finding in that area?
2: Well, I guess to start with, one thing that I like to point out is that the World Health Organization has said that uh, dependence on illicit drugs is the most stigmatized health condition in the world. Mm. And that really resonates true to what we see in Australia. So I did a big study a couple of years ago, and we had 2,000 participants complete an online survey. And of those participants, 40 to 60% held stigmatizing drug attitudes, sorry, Mm -hmm. about the drug or people who... Yeah,
1: it's huge.
2: And you can also just think of the flow on effect of that because it might not be you who is using it, it might be your family member and so you might feel that stigma and shame just from pure association. Yeah.
1: So how would one look to decrease stigma when it comes to their drug usage or their family and friends or their neighbours. I mean, stigma is such, it's, it's what I would call the silent killer when it comes to addiction because of the heavy stigma associated with alcohol and other drugs. In particular, there's many other addictions, but I'm going to single those two out. It, obviously, it prevents people from, from getting help. So.
2: Absolutely. Like people will put off seeking help for years yeah. just yeah. because they are scared of being judged when they walk through that door and asking for help and admitting that they might, you know, need help.
1: Does your research look at like how we can decrease stigma in our society? I mean, it's it's a huge beast to to try and dismantle, but
2: yes. where do we um, start? There are, I guess, a number of levels of stigma. So there's sort of like public stigma and structural stigma. But I think we can learn a lot from the mental health field. So knowledge and increasing people's knowledge about drugs and the effects and getting them to see the person behind the substance, Mm. that's really powerful. So people, you know, they'll read the headlines and they'll say, oh, you know, this person used meth and they were associated with a crime so everyone who uses meth must Mm. be associated with crime Mm -hmm. and that's not true at all. So it's really about educating people, you know, what is the truth, like what are the facts? Yeah. And, you know, the media obviously does play an important role as well about giving an accurate and not sensationalised sort of view of drug use and alcohol use, Mm. which can sometimes happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: So, and I I guess I should also add like that's one of the approaches, the educational approach. Mm. The other approach really is about involving people with lived experience and we've seen that. You know, when people are, uh, you know, meet someone, so for example, in the mental health field, when you work or you meet someone with an anxiety disorder or a depression, you see that they are just an average person, mm-hmm. you know, and that it's not something to be afraid of. And we see that as well. Like the embedding of lived experience is so important yep. because it really brings that human aspect to the situation.
1: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, the person who is suffering addiction of of whatever form is literally a human it's another person and for whatever reason they've found themselves in that situation yes and I was listening to some panelists this afternoon at the conference that were talking about you know to improve relationships in a therapy session or dynamic then we need to look at the person that we're helping as a fellow human rather than someone with a disorder or an illness or you know obviously that is a byproduct of whatever's going on for them but to treat them as yes, as a human. It's yeah, so to really important. take that
2: holistic approach to yeah. the situation. Yeah. And I think it also comes down to a lot of the language that you, we use. Like we often label people, you know, an addict or a junkie and that just puts them in one box. Mm. But, you know, they could be a father, they could be a grandfather, they could have children, like, you know, have a really successful career. Like they've got this huge world around them and yet we only see that one label. And that's yep. why it's so important to really rethink our language and to focus around like the person behind the substance.
1: Can we talk about, I guess, the person behind the substance in terms of your research and what it shows from a, a profile perspective in terms of where are we seeing the greatest usage of ice in Australia at the moment? What ages are we looking at in bracket terms? Obviously, addiction doesn't discriminate. It can be in your backyard at any time at any period in your life but do you have any data around where we're seeing this ice usage really explode at the moment? Generally the sort of age of onset for methamphetamine use is in
2: the early 20s so Mm -hmm. not so much the high school population but more that sort of early 20s university or you know first job sort of age. But like, as you said, it doesn't discriminate, it can happen at any age. You know, people start using drugs for many reasons. It might be out of, you know, curiosity, might be out of boredom, or it might be to cope with mental health issues. So I guess at any point in time, you know, people can turn to alcohol and other drugs.
1: Mm, absolutely. What about talking about, like, how your research can make the impact that you mentioned earlier about, you know, you were doing some work in science, but you didn't feel like that was really making the positive impact that you feel. Tell us about how you feel at the moment with your research and how that does make that ripple effect in in contributing to the wider picture that we're tackling, which is obviously addiction and, and ice usage.
2: I love the space that I'm in right now
1: because
2: I will get emails or I'll meet people even at this conference who have said to me, wow, your resources have really helped. Like I was able to, you know, refer a family member to these resources or they were great evidence-based and helped me keep up to date with what training was available. And it was also just, you know, we have a really cute little knowledge quiz on cracks in the ice and people can, you know, test truth or false Mm. and, then you know, can really change their misconceptions around the drug. Some of the misconceptions that we often hear is that people who use ice are always psychotic, they're always angry and aggressive, and that's not true for the majority of people. Right. So, yeah, I really do feel like I am making like an actual difference in the space just with the educational side.
1: Mm. I think that goes back to reducing the stigma by educating people and and raising awareness, which is why we're all here really, isn't it, at the Addiction Conference? What would you do? So say, for example, if you didn't work as a researcher in this area, where do you see yourself potentially heading in the future? What's your, I guess, your pathway that you're aiming towards?
2: It's hilarious that you ask that because I was just talking to someone before where I said, I feel like I'm someone who just falls into opportunities. Nice. I feel like I've never had the five, ten year grand plan.
1: <laughs> I feel
2: like I've just always leapt at an opportunity that's spoken to me, whether it be an internship you know, moving states to take up a different job and it's all just seems to have led me in this beautiful direction.
1: So good. So
2: I don't know if I could say I'd commit to a
1: plan. Mm -hmm. So far my my current plan seems to be working really well. It seems that when I have conversations with people in this sector that it's very much intertwined. So you can start off your career on the front line per se, you know, being a peer worker or support worker or counsellor and then end up somehow in, in correctional kind of policy or advocacy or it's, it's fascinating how people's careers, when you follow them or you talk to them about their careers, the, the twists and turns that they take. But I've also found that ultimately the journey for AOD counsellors or professionals has often started a journey with themselves Oh, or I, someone they know.
2: Yeah, I absolutely resonate with mm. that. Um, so before I took on this job with Cracks in the Ice, I'd never really heard about co design and co production. And now that's something that I'm really passionate about. As an academic with a PhD, I thought, oh, I know all the evidence, you know, I know what's in the literature. But then meeting people who've actually had experiences who have lived, you know, with drug and alcohol use or with the family member who is using alcohol and other drugs, has really just their knowledge and mm. just their perspective that they bring and marrying that up to the literature it just creates such
1: beautiful, relatable resources. Do you feel that in today's day and age that the balance between lived experience and research or clinical or, or the more academic side of things is a, a unionship in terms of coming together to provide those positive outcomes? I'm gonna take there's a no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I was thinking. And you can edit out that thinking
1: minute.
2: So I guess hmm, Ask the question again, I've got my answer.
1: Yeah. I'm asking whether you feel that the unionship between lived experience and research or, or clinical or academic is what I'm what I'm saying whether the the two different sides of the coin per se have come together to effectively create better outcomes when it comes to connection and collaboration to create better communities.
2: There are definitely some great examples of where peer workers have been embedded into treatment centres and where people with lived experience are involved in research, which makes it all that more strongly. I do think that when it happens, it is beautiful and it does create the best resource or the best outcome. Unfortunately, I I think it's a space where we still need to do a lot of work and Mm -hmm. development. I'm just not sure that the true appreciation of lived experience is taken on board as much as it should be.
1: Now I'm going to throw out a bit of a curly question here, but would that by any chance have anything to do with the stigma? I
2: think so. Yeah. uh, For sure. I, I feel like With the mental health field, they're in a way much more advanced than AOD when it comes to that because they've really tried to reduce the stigma around mental health and they've been able to do a lot more with their peer work and with their embedding of people with lived experience and I would love to see more of that in the AOD space.
1: I really, yeah, I thank you for asking that question, asking, answering that question, honestly, because you're right. I, th- I The way that I see it is that there is a lot of work to be done to bridge that gap, but it's great. We're always going to have those different perspectives being lived experience and academic or clinical, but when we come together, I think that's where so much goodness can come from. And I don't know how you bridge that gap. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, that's not my role. It's not your role, but it's certainly something that everyone in this room at the addiction conference is working towards.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a number of constraints, I guess, around the co-design co-production process. And one of them is obviously funding for academics and research projects have very tight timelines. And the one thing that you need to do true co-design and co-production is time time to meet the right people, you know, time to talk to the people. Just finding where the communities are that will need the resource the most and often funders don't quite appreciate the time that you need to invest Mm. to do it properly. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's a great point. What would be your main challenge that you're seeing in your role at the moment or the research that you're doing?
2: The main challenge is uh, I guess getting people to talk honestly about what's happening in their lives in terms of their methamphetamine use, but also just finding a way to effectively disseminate and talk about stigma in a way that will reduce it and encourage people to seek help so that they aren't ashamed of their use.
1: Would that happen by people telling their stories openly and honestly and then that going onto a more public platform where other members of society can access or hear their stories.
2: I think that's a really important part of it. Yeah, absolutely. That sort of contact-based approach is called in the literature, Mm -hmm. that seeing that person behind the substance like we've talked about before. But sometimes that also needs to be married up with sort of the education because, you know, we might be exposed to a lot of myths, like your mum might say something over the dinner table and you take it as a fact but in truth like that's not you know, you have to double-check your facts.
1: Mm. So with the research that you know about stigma, can I ask you another bit of an interesting question? Hypothetically speaking, let's say you yourself have an addiction to whatever. Let's, let's say hypothetically it, you have an addiction to, to ice. Knowing what you know about stigma and the research and the work that you do, would you feel comfortable as yourself in this day and age to come out and speak about your addiction or usage to help others despite what you know about the stigma? I think I would. You would. Okay. That's good I to mean, know. it
2: is scary and some of the people that I've spoken to with lived experience and the, like the research that I've done, you know, there's high levels of discrimination mm. when people do seek help but one of the things is the earlier you, you seek help, the better and also one thing that people consistently say to me is hearing someone else who's gone through it or someone else I can relate to really makes the difference. Yeah. So I, I think I would.
1: Yeah, good on you. It's a, I know it's an interesting question to ask, but I think it's sometimes it's so easy to, to try and put ourselves into other people's shoes and be like, okay, well, would I come forward and speak openly about such a... A challenging topic.
2: Yeah, I mean, my initial thought was, oh, how terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) But, and I guess it also does help knowing that there is treatment and support available. Yeah, Often it it can be a bit of a difficult path to navigate Mm. and finding the right
1: avenues, but, you know, it is there. So the people that you've interviewed with lived experience with ICE usage is there a theme that you have picked up on in terms of like a common trend it started at x point it then evolved into something else it then transpired into an unmanageable addiction or is it or is it not as I mean I know, I know that addiction isn't linear by any means but
2: yeah it's th- definitely not linear I think I've seen a variety of stories
1: mm-hmm.
2: I've seen people who you know started using it you know in fun situations in parties and then it sort of developed from there. I've also seen people who have massive workloads and they just needed something to keep them going. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's how it all started. I think it really does depend on what's happening with that person yeah. and what's happening in their lives. Yeah. And it's like, you know, we know <laughs> addiction doesn't discriminate and it, it can affect anyone at any time of their life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You've been a pleasure to speak with this afternoon. Thanks so much for your time, Steph. And I look forward to having a chat with you next year. The Well, I guess we will be actually, you know, we will be having a chat next year. I'll drag you back on this podcast when to talk about your research that you're doing then. <laughs> Thanks so much, Steph. Thanks for having me. Most welcome.
0: Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to share with your friends and colleagues. And if you know someone working in mental health that you'd like to see featured on the podcast, please email any suggestions to us at membership at anzmh.asn.au. You can also stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next episode with you next week.